Take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 18. The Old Testament prophet Jeremiah was a brave man because he spoke the word of God even though he knew that it was going to cause him trouble. Because of that, he ended up in, in the stocks at one time and just was, was abused by the people of God because he spoke the word of God. But he still gave the message, and uh, it's a message that's even true for us today. So follow in your Bibles as, as we read Jeremiah chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. The word which came from, to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause thee to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he wrought a work on the wheels. And the vessel that he made of clay was made marred in the hand of the potter, So he made it again another vessel as seemed good to the potter to make it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter, saith the Lord? Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are ye in mine hand, O house of Israel. At what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and and concerning a kingdom to pluck up and to pull down and to destroy it, If that nation against who I have pronounced turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. And at what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it do evil in my sight, that it obey not my voice, then I will repent of the good wherewith I said I would benefit them. Now therefore go to, speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I frame, you, uh, frame evil against you and, and devise a device against you. Return ye now everyone from his evil way and make your ways and your doings good. And they said, There is no hope, but we will walk after our own devices and we will, and we will everyone do the imagination of his evil heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for the word of God. We thank you for the promises that are in your word. We thank you, Lord, for the warnings that we find there. And I pray that we as God's people would heed your word today and we might realize that even though many in the country won't turn to you, we surely can, we surely should. And I pray that we would do what we should do as children of God. We ask for our nation today, Lord, that you might bring revival in this land, and we pray that you'd bring back sanity, and I pray that you'd help our leaders to bow before you and confess their sins, and I pray that you might bring us people who are humble and obedient to you to, to, to guide our country. Lord, we need you in a very special way. We need you as a country. And so I ask, Lord, that you might enable me to bring the message today may be clear and may be understandable. And we'll thank you for your help and accomplish your will, we pray, in each life. In Jesus' name, amen. On Tuesday of this week, our nation will celebrate its 247th birthday. Our nation has enjoyed 247 years of God's blessings. God has planted us, protected us, provided for us, and prospered us. 
We have enjoyed unprecedented freedom, unmatched blessings, and surely undeserved grace. We have a, a rich Christian heritage that is unsurpassed by any nation. Even though many do not like to recognize the Christian beginnings of our nation, it is unmistakably clear that many God-fearing people were greatly used of God to establish and lead our country. This morning I'm going to quote from the book by Dr. Dave Gibbs, the president of the Christian Law Association. The book's entitled One Nation Under God. I'm going to quote from several historic uh, references uh, from his book. First of all, in the beginning of our country, you might, have to, you might want to say it goes back to Christopher Columbus, way before we were established as a country, but he came to establish, he came to discover the, the new world of which America was part of that. And Christopher Columbus told the reasons for his voyage. Now, we understand that today Christopher Columbus is being maligned in every way he can be, and he's made out to be the man that he was not. Sure, he had flaws, but he was a man who feared God. And, uh, but there's all kinds of attempts to uh, take down Christ- Christopher Columbus. First of all, we read about his reasons for the voyage that he took. We find it, and it says, it says this. He's talking about the reasons for his voyage. It was the Lord who put into my mind, I could feel his hand upon me, to sail to the Indies. He thought he was going to the Indies. All who heard of my project rejected it, rejected it with laughter, ridiculing me. There is no question that the inspiration was from the Holy Spirit because he comforted me with rays of marvelous illumination from the Holy Scriptures. He also told of his attitude toward the natives. And it says this, when he was talking about his kind, kindly attitude toward, toward the natives, the Indians that he found there, and that's why he called them Indians, because he thought he was the Indies. He says, I forbade worthless, th- worth, worthless things being given to them, that is, the Indians, such as bits of broken bowls and pieces of glass and old straps. It seemed wrong to me. I forbade it, and I gave a thousand good and pretty things that I had to win their love and to induce them to become Christians. That was his desire and his plan. The pilgrims came to America seeking religious freedom. And in that Malay, in their Mayflower Compact on, on November the 11th, 1620, they began their statement with these words, In the name of God, Amen. The first Puritans arrived in Salem in 1629. And re- later, Reverend Cotton Mather, an early chronicler of the colonist, uh, colonist history, years later, stayed the reason why the Puritans came to America. And he said this. He said, First, it will be a service unto the church, uh, unto the church of great consequence to carry the gospel into those parts of the world and raise a bulwark against the kingdom of Antichrist. And then also, they gave, he gave this reason for them coming. And he said, he said this. Fifthly, he's giving reasons. I gave the first. This was the fifth reason. It sounds like today. The schools of learning and religion are so corrupted as most children, even the best, wittiest, and of the fairest hopes, are perverted, corrupted, and utterly overthrown by the multitude of evil examples and licentious behaviors 
in these seminaries. And that was the schools where they were training people to be ministers. And he said they are corrupted as, as they can be. America became a sanctuary for re- many religious dissidents, people who were looking for religious freedom in a new world because they were being denied that where they were. So the pilgrims came and the Puritans then the Huguenots, and also Presbyterians and Roman Catholics and Baptists and Quakers and German Dunkers and many others. They came for the religious freedom they would find in this United States. And that's still a tenet that we believe, or that a lot of people believe, we should have religious freedom, and that is being attacked today. Early education in the, in the early colonies reveals the rich influence of Christianity. I quote to you t- today uh, from his book again concerning the New England pr- primer. And it, this is from 1688, and they were sold all the way through 1790 and beyond, the New England primer. The New England primer was used to teach colonial children uh, to read. And here's what it says in one page entitled, Lessons to Children. Here's the lessons to the children. Pray to God, love God, fear God, serve God, take not God's name in vain, do not swear, do not steal, cheat not in your play, play not with bad boys, uh, call no ill names, use no ill words, tell no lies, hate lies, speak the truth, spend your time well, love your school, mind your book, strive to learn, and be not a dunce. (laughs) Also, they learned their alphabet by references to the Bible. Here's the way they learned their alphabet. A is Adam's fall, in, in Adam's fall we send all. B, heaven to find the Bible mind. C, Christ crucified for sinners died. That was early education in our colonies. America's first college was Harvard. Harvard is not, of course, a good school today. It's a, it's a school uh, that's filled with all kinds of progressive thought and actually, uh, actually uh, animosity to the United States and its founding. But Harvard was founded by a man by the name of Reverend John Harvard. It was founded, founded in 1636. And I want to read to you some of the things about Harvard. Harvard's laws and statutes for students of Harvard College in 1643 said this, Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. The first requirement for admissions, this will boggle your mind, the first requirement for admission to the school was that students should be fluent in reading and writing biblical languages. What's that? Greek and Hebrew. Um, biblical languages, so they could translate the scriptures. Students were also expected to know Latin, the language of most theological writings at that time. When we consider the teenagers as as, as young as 14 were admitted to Harvard, it speaks volumes about the quality of education that even very young children received in early America. The rules go on to stipulate that students were required to read and study the Bible at least twice a day. That's at Harvard. Well, they've gone down a long way, haven't they? Also, other American schools were established in those early days. I read where out of 108 schools established in those early days, 
106 of them were established upon Christian principles to glorify God. Some of those schools were the College of William and Mary, Yale, Columbia University, Princeton, Dartmouth. Dartmouth was established for the sole reason of raising up ministers and missionaries to the Indians. Yes, God-fearing men and women were greatly used of God to establish and lead our country. Revisionist historians like to attack our foundation and disregard the Christian heritage that we have. They try to destroy our history and malign our founders. One of these they like to attack is George Washington, the first president of the United States. They try to make him out to be a deist. A deist is a person who says God created the earth and then just left it. No revelation from God, no scripture from God, no interference from God, nothing like that. He just made it and let it go. That's a deist. They claim that he, some claim that uh, George Washington was a deist, but the evidence proves otherwise. He was a faithful church attender, and to be a faithful church attender in those days meant that you had to ride horseback for a good ways sometime to actually get to church. If people had to do that, how many would show up? But he was a faithful church attender. He believed in the authority of the Bible. He believed in Jesus Christ, that he died for our sins and that he rose, rose from the grave. Also, there are other things that we read about him. I read to you some of the, years later, they found one of his prayer journals that he used when he was a young man, and when he was a young man. And here was one of those readings on Sunday morning. Almighty God and most merciful Father, who didst command the children of Israel to offer a daily sacrifice to thee, that thereby they might glorify and praise thee for thy protection both night and day. Receive, O Lord, my morning sacrifice, which I now offer up to thee. And since thou art a God of pure eyes and will be sanctified in all who draw near to thee, who dost not regard the sacrifice of fools nor hear sinners who tread in thy courts, pardon, I beseech thee, my sins. Remove them from thy presence as far as the east is from the west and accept me for the merits of thy son, Jesus Christ. Bless my family, kindred, friends, and country by our God and guide this day and forever uh, for, for his sake who lay down in the grave and rose again for us, Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. That was George Washington, his prayer journal. And then and also he talks about his, his first order of war, uh, for the War of Independence. I thought this interesting. His first order for the War of Independence said this, the general most certainly requires and expects a due observance of those articles of war established for the government of the army. Who forbid, which forbid profane cursing, swearing, and drunkenness. And in the manner he requires and expects of all, officers and soldiers not engaged in actual duty, a punctual attendance on divine service to implore the blessings of heaven upon the means used for our safety and defense. Washington once responded to a group of Indians who were seeking to educate their children like the Englishman did, and he said this, he told them that the, that the single most important thing they could learn from the, Amer- from the Americans was the way of Jesus Christ. He said in his words, You do well to wish to learn our arts and ways of life and above all the religion of Jesus Christ. Cong- Notice this. Congress will do everything they can to assist you in this wise in- in- intention. Congress will assist the Indians 
to follow Jesus Christ. We've sure drifted a long way from that, have we not? Also, in this response to his response to the Indians we just read, but also after Benedict Arnold was discovered, he he recognized that it was the providence of God that caused this to happen. Remember, Benedict Arnold was a traitor, and uh, it says this about him. Uh, When Benedict Arnold uh, engaged in treason, George Washington stumbled on the evidence quite by accident, and then he made this statement. Happily, the reason had been timely discovered to prevent the fatal misfortune. The providential train of circumstances which led to to it affords the most convincing proof that the liberties of America are the object of, of divine protection. George Washington believed in the Lord. Many other facts could be added, but these are sufficient for us this morning to affirm that our nation was founded with God, with, on godly principles, with God's blessings, and God blessed us for a purpose. Since that founding, our nation has accomplished many things, and our accomplishments have enriched the world. Our nation's generosity has blessed many people, many nations, both free and both friend and foe. Our churches have instructed and encouraged many families, and multitudes have come to faith in Jesus Christ. And our great missionary zeal has enabled us to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ around the world. Yes, America is a nation which fits the description we read this morning in Jeremiah 18, verse 9. Look at it with me again. And at what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build it, to build and to plant it. God built and planted the United States. God's hand was in this country when it began. And I believe that it had Christian beginnings as we've illustrated Uh, this morning. God has surely built and God has surely planted the United States. But we have left our founding principles. We have forsaken our God. We have gone after other gods, the gods of self, salaries, stuff, and sex. Washington is, in his first inaugural address, said this. He warned the nation, The propitious smiles of heaven can never be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order and right which heaven itself has ordained. Yet we seek God's blessings while we disobey God. We have come to the place where we call evil good and good evil. I still remember, as some of you probably do, 9-11-2001, when our nation was hit by terrorists. 150 members of Congress stood on the Capitol steps and sang, God bless America. It was a moving experience. And at the time, I thought this is great. But then afterwards, you think about it and you wonder. Some of those congressmen and congresswomen were dealing in lies. They're living ungodly lives at the time. And yet at a time of crisis, they asked God to bless America. But as Washington said, we cannot expect the smiles of heaven while we disregard the eternal rules of order and right which heaven itself has ordained. Our nation is given to materialism, immorality, blasphemy against God, and blatant disregard for God's word. We are proud, arrogant, 
self-serving, unthankful, and unholy. It is so bad today that the other day our president honored the despicable lifestyles of the LGBTQAI plus people of, of our nation, and they honored them at the nation's White House. He displayed the, the pride flag alongside of the American flag. And then he said that some of those people there were the most courageous people he had ever met. How sick, how sad. And we're caused to ask, is there hope for America now as bad shape, as as bad a shape as it's in? Well, today I'm glad to say, yes, there is hope for America. There is hope for America. So I want us to consider four reasons why I believe there's still hope for America. The first one is this, because of God's patience. Aren't you glad for God's patience? The Lord first convicted me that I was a lost sinner even though I was religious when I was 13 years old. It was nine years God dealt with me and I resisted. Nine years until I was 22 years old until I trusted the Lord as my Savior. I am so glad that the Lord never came back or that I didn't die during those nine years. God was long-suffering to me. And he's been long-suffering to you, I'm sure. And he's patient. God is a patient God. The scripture says in Psalm 86, verse 15, But thou, O Lord, art a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and plenteous in mercy and truth. Oh, Lord, I'm glad that you're a God that's long-suffering and patient. So because of, of God's patience, there's still hope for America. In 1 Peter chapter 3, in reference to Noah's day, it says this, When once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing. There's different estimates of how long. You really can't nail it down from the scripture. From, a, from 50 to 100 years it took to build the, the ark. I'm not real sure how long it took. But uh, it took a long time. But while the ark was preparing, then it says this, wherein few, that is eight souls, were saved by water. Only eight people were saved. And all that time, God waited and was long-suffering and gave them another chance. And Noah was a preacher of righteousness, and he no doubt preached for them to, to repent and come to the Lord and get on the ark. But they didn't. They didn't believe him. And they rejected him. But God was long-suffering during that time. The Bible tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3, the Lord is not slack, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish. God's not willing that any should perish. Do we have hope that America might be spared or that America might still receive the blessings of God? Well, yes, there's hope because God is patient. I'll guarantee you he's more patient than you are. I know he's more patient than I am. God's a patient God. And uh, he waits. And the reason he hasn't already put the America down is because he's patient and long-suffering. So there's hope because of God's patience. Also, there's hope because of God's promise. God promised to bless those who turn to him in repentance. He has promised that. He tells us in Proverbs 14, verse 34, Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is reproached to any people. Righteousness exalteth a nation. Sin is reproached to any people. 
Now, we're going through that time in our nation where there, sin is a reproach to us. God is not pleased at all. God is not putting his approval on these things. God is not pleased, but God starts off by saying righteousness exalts a nation. And there's still a possibility that a nation can turn back to the Lord. God promised that he will respond if we repent. We find it in Jeremiah 18. We'll look at it in a minute. But revivals have happened in our country. And revivals might be happening today. There's some stir revival like what happened at Asbury and other colleges. And whether that will continue or not, I'm not sure. And, uh, but revival is possible. There was the first great awakening between 1730 and 1740. Jonathan Edwards and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield were part of that great revival. There was a second great, great awakening, and that was from 1820 to 1850. And Charles Finney was a very prominent person during that time. There was a third great, great awakening in D.L. Moody, 1875 to 1885. Uh, D.L. Moody was, was one u- greatly used of the Lord at that time. There have been 20th century revivals, such as under uh, Billy Sunday and no doubt under Billy Graham. God used those people. God can still bring revival, and God promises that if people will repent, he will respond. We find that in Jeremiah 18, the passage that we read. Jeremiah was told to go down to the potter's house. And at the potter's house, the potter was working with some clay on the wheel. The Jewish uh, pottery wheel was such that the, the potter uh, worked the wheel with a wheel that was down in the bottom part of this. There was a wooden shaft, and there was a wheel at the bottom and a wheel at the top. He would work the wheel at the bottom with his foot to turn the wheel at the top. And so as he was turning the wheel, you remember, the, notice the potter's in charge of all of it. He's making the wheel turn, and then he lays his hand on the clay, and he begins to mold and make that clay. And then it says this, the, the clay was marred in the hand of the potter. He's working with that clay, and it becomes marred in the hand of the potter. And what does he do? Does he take it and throw it away? No, the Bible says he breaks it down and makes it again another vessel as seemed good to the potter to make it. So the Lord says, and so it is with you, Israel. And he says, I can do the same thing to you. I can knock you down and I can start all over again. But there's one thing you'll guarantee, God never takes his hand off of Israel because he has a, had a promise to them. And then he applies that, and he said, and any other nation, any nation, and it says this, of that nation against whom I pronounce, turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. So the United States, is there hope for the United States? Yes, because God has promised. And that is, if you will turn from your evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto you. So it's possible that God can bring revival and the people can turn to the Lord in repentance. It might take an awful event to happen, but it could happen and the Lord could bring us back. There is hope for America because of the promise of God that if you repent, God will respond. You remember a Bible account of that is in the book of Jonah. God had pronounced judgment upon Nineveh. 
And he said to Jonah, Jonah, you go and tell them that I'm going to destroy them. And I'm going to bring judgment. And Jonah didn't want to because Nineveh was the enemy. And they're wicked, wicked people. And he wanted nothing to do with them. So he fled from the presence of the Lord, he thought. He was to go to Nineveh and he got on a ship to go to Tarshish. God stopped him. You know the story. He ended up uh, being thrown overboard. And even the whale couldn't stand that backslidden preacher. And he vomited him up after a little while. And uh, then he went on his way finally to Nineveh. And what happened? Something happened that even Jonah didn't want to happen. And that is Nineveh repented. And God says, all right, I'm not going to destroy Nineveh now. I changed my mind. Because they changed their actions. And so a Bible example example is Nineveh. Now, many years later, Nineveh went back to what they were and went again, again rebelling against God, and God destroyed them. But there is hope for America because of the promise of God. If you will repent, I will respond, God says. But then there's another reason there's hope for America. There's hope for America because of God's people. God's patience, God's promise, and God's people. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 5 that we're the light of the world and we're the salt of the earth. Christians, we're the light of the world and the salt of the earth. I firmly believe that if it hadn't been, if it hadn't been for all the Christians in this country and still many millions of them today in this country, Bible-believing Christians, if it hadn't been for us, the salt of the earth, the light of the world, that God probably would have destroyed the United States a long time ago. But God has delayed that punishment because of his people. But then also he says this in 1 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, or 2 Chronicles 7, 14. If my people, which are called by my name, now I know this is particularly referring to Israel, but we fit the qualification of my people as well. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, I'll hear from heaven and I'll heal their land. Is there hope for America? There's hope for America because of God's people. You see, the hope of America is not a new president. It's not a president that's going to do what we want him to do. It's not a president that's even going to be a believer. The hope for America is not that. The hope for America is not a Congress, and Congress is the Senate and the House combined, by the way. And Congress is, the hope for America is not a Congress where a majority of them are believers. That would make a great difference, and it would be good, sure. But that's not the hope for America. The hope of America is God's people. You see, Sugar Run Valley Baptist Church and all the churches who believe in the Lord and, and, uh, and honor his word across this nation, we're the hope of America. And a lot depends on us and what we do and how we respond, how we live, how we act among unsaved people, how we spread the gospel to them. The hope of America is in God's people. And once Jesus comes back and takes us away, that'll be very evident because once the rapture takes place and God takes all Christians out of this country, it'll fall immediately. And there'll be a rush to evil like has never been before. 
And I believe that the people of this country will gladly submit to the Antichrist. And what's holding back that? It's the presence of God's people. And we are the hope of America, God's people. We must make sure that we do our part. It's not enough just to blame the politicians. It's not enough to to complain about an election. It's what we must do is to live like God's people should live. Be the salt of the earth. Be the light of the world out there among people. The hope of America is in God's people. And then finally, there's one other thing. The hope of America is in God's patience. The hope of America is in God's promise. The hope of America is in God's people. And then finally this, the hope of America is in God's propitiation. Propitiation. What does propitiation mean? Well, it's a Bible word that means satisfaction. And the Bible says Jesus Christ is our propitiation. He's the one who satisfies a holy God. And the hope of America is in the propitiation, God's propitiation, that is Jesus. Now that can happen as a nation if we, uh, the majority of the nation, would turn to Jesus Christ and trust him as their Savior. Sure, that would make a, a lot of difference, and they would be trusting in Jesus. But whether that happens or not, you as an individual, and individuals you know, they can have hope in a troublesome time because they can trust Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. In 1 John chapter 4, it talks about that, the propitiation, and says this, In this was manifest of the love of God toward us, because that God sent His, sent his only begotten Son to the world, that we might live through Him. Here in His love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His, his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so love us, we ought also to love one another. And so he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The Bible says that he is the propitiation not for our sins only, but also for the sins of everyone. So Jesus Christ is the satisfaction that God, that God is pleased with. Isaiah chapter 53 uh, speaks of it. And in that passage, that classic passage, we read in verse 6, but uh, in verse 5, we read, we read this. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shears is done, dumb, so he opened not his mouth. But then in verse 10, it says this, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath, made, he hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. You see, the hope for anybody is found in Jesus Christ. You will never expect, you can never expect to satisfy God. I don't matter, it doesn't matter how religious you are, how many times you read your Bible through, how many times you pray, how many times you go to church, and all those good things. It doesn't matter about that. All of your efforts are not going to please God. Because 
Pleasing God is not found in your actions. Pleasing God is found in your Savior. He's the propitiation. He's the satisfaction. Now, the wonderful thing is, when you trust Jesus, who is the satisfaction, who is God is satisfied, then God comes satisfied with your service to him because of Jesus. And so you have to trust Jesus as your Savior. Yes, there's hope for America today, and it's found in God's patience, God's promise that he will change if we change, God's people, if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray, then God will hear, and then God's propitiation, Jesus Christ. Now let us say this as we close. Who is Jesus? He's God. The Bible says, in the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same with this, in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So Jesus is God. And so what's the hope of America? Well, the hope of America is in God. Jesus is God. So it's in Jesus' patience, Jesus' promise, Jesus' people, Jesus' propitiation. It all boils down to this. The hope of America is in Jesus. He's the hope. Is there any hope for this country? I get so tired of all this debauchery that's going on today. I get so tired of being called normal, for being, people being proud of it. I get tired of that, and I'm sure you do as well. And we wonder, is there hope? And the answer is, yes, there's hope. Because Jesus died for all those people just like he died for me and you. They don't deserve heaven, neither do I. And the only hope for everybody is found in Jesus Christ. If you've never trusted him as your Savior, you need to understand today that you are a sinner, that Jesus came to take your place and die for your sins on the cross of Calvary. And he took all that you deserve for your sins. He took it upon himself. And God the Father turned in wrath to his son, Jesus Christ, and he paid for your sins. All the sin that you have committed and ever will commit was laid on Jesus, and Jesus paid the penalty for it. Then he was, then he was buried, put in the grave, and then he rose again the third day as proof it's all paid for. And if you'll come to faith in Jesus Christ, who is the only person that will satisfy a holy God, if you'll trust him as your personal Savior and say to the Lord, Lord, I'm a lost sinner. I believe that Jesus died for my sin. I want to turn from that. I want to trust you as my personal Savior. Put all my hope in you, and I accept you today as my Savior. The Lord says he'll save you, and I guarantee you, you'll have wonderful hope, wonderful hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you today for allowing us to see the hope of America is found in Jesus. I pray, Lord, that we might be the people we should be as ambassadors for Jesus Christ, those who spread the news about what Jesus did for people, those who live their lives as people who've been changed by Jesus. May we be examples, Lord, of what you can do for everyone around us who comes to know Jesus as their Savior. Thank you for our country. Thank you for our beginnings. Thank you for the people who laid the foundation, many who loved you and served you, and I thank you for your blessings through all these years. 
And in these perilous times, Lord, we pray that you might bring a change in our country, that our people would go back to you, and that there would be hope because of Jesus. We pray in his name.